Hello and welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Rick Boddy and today we're going to be talking about communicating with patients about COVID-19 testing and I'm very privileged to be joined by our two fantastic lay representatives from the Condor programme. So first of all we have Val Tate. So Val do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Indeed. Hi everybody my name is Val Tate I uh, live in Oxford and I uh, support our local Department of Primary Care at the university with uh, PPI projects. Uh, my background is I was an academic at one point, I was a virologist even, and I got involved in setting up a DNA diagnostic company a long time ago. So I have to, I have to declare interest in both DNA diagnostics and also latterly in, in uh, communications. So those are the couple of, that's experience that I'd like to bring to PPI today. Thanks, Val. And next, we also have Graham Prestwich with us. Graham, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Good afternoon, everybody. Very pleased to meet you over the airwaves. Um, I'm perhaps best described as a lad from Leeds. Um, But over recent years, I've become very much involved in supporting and helping people to get involved in health and healthcare, and particularly looking after themselves and helping organisations understand patient and public needs around the development and improvement of services. I currently work part-time as a lead for patient and public involvement at the Yorkshire and Humber Academic Health Science Network. And through that link, I've had the pleasure of joining Rick and his colleagues and working on the Condor programme. So welcome to you all. Thanks very much, Graham and Val, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for giving up your time to share your insights about how we should communicate effectively with regard to COVID tests. So today what we want to do is arm you with the information you need to communicate effectively with the public around COVID tests. I think we probably all by now have experience of doing this. So we're going to go through uh, what we think might be helpful to arm you with um, the tools you need to get those messages across. Graham, could I come to you first just to ask you why why do we need to focus on this for the next 20 minutes or so? Thank you, Rick. I think it's very important that clinicians are able to build trust and confidence in patients and the public because the COVID-19 has brought with it a huge importance of people taking responsibility for what they do and how they behave and what they can and cannot do in terms of their normal daily lives. And therefore, understanding what's going on around them and why they have to make those decisions becomes particularly important in this instance. So I'm keen to support all I can to make sure that everybody, or as many people as possible, get the best understanding of what's going on. And the definitive source that many people trust the most for talking about things to do with their health and well-being is of course their doctor, and hence today's interest. So if we, to get us started, let's start thinking about terms that we might use in a conversation with a patient around COVID testing. What are the, the common terms that have almost become part of our normal everyday language that we take for granted? I think it's important to remember that, that most people are not scientists, and um probably 98% of people are not used to the sorts of terms, even though we hear them an awful lot in the news at the moment. I think they can be overused, certainly the scientific terms and statistical terms as well, 
um, can really put people off. Uh, and if they're not understanding what a false positive is or what a false negative is, um, and what's what's the difference between the lateral flow test and, and the tests that they do on the track and trace system, I think it really, as, as Graham says, you tend to lose confidence and you lose trust. So I think it's important to use very simple language, not to overuse the scientific language. Yeah, and that's a, a really important one too. Um, you mentioned there the terms false positive and false negative, which we wouldn't necessarily think of as medical terms, but that we use all of the time. When, when we're talking about tests, for example, one thing that patients might want to know about is how accurate the tests actually are. Um, so how should we go about explaining that without slipping into the use of terms that uh, that wouldn't be understood? I'd say that's a, um, was it $64 million question? It's It certainly isn't easy. And I know as part of the work that, that Graham and I've been doing with Condor, we've been trying to um, find simple ways of explaining certainly the, the sort of differences in accuracy between the different tests and, and why we have to why do we hear about in, in, in the news certain um, certain tests? There's, there's a lot of debate about whether, say, lateral flow tests are good or bad or not. And that doesn't help public confidence again. But how we actually express the difference between these tests and what the numbers mean. Another aspect to this is, is that we know that people within Condor certainly um, discuss that what might be a good number in one kind of test, you know, good sensitivity in one kind of test or a bad sensitivity in another situation might not preclude the use of that particular test in another situation. I think what, what we call use cases. So I think I'm just adding a level of com- complexity at this point without giving you an answer. Perhaps the start point for this is to just make sure that everybody's clear about some of the words that you introduced at the start. So we've got coronaviruses of which um, can cause an illness called COVID-19 and the specific virus that causes COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2. Is that right? Yeah that's right Graham. Um, So that's one way that we could perhaps go about explaining it isn't it? I think these terms are used so often in the media now it's a highly unusual situation isn't it because we're not used to um, having medical terms thrust upon us and in every news bulletin, uh, everywhere we turn in social media. Um, and I suppose we start to take it for granted that everyone understands what we mean by the terms. And that's not necessarily the case. You're right that we should uh, be, be, be checking patients' understanding as we go. Thanks, Rick. And that, that then builds, doesn't it? Because you can then more accurately or more clearly describe what the different tests actually measure because there's a lot of added complications to measurement not least of which is when were you exposed to the infection in the first place and do you have symptoms or don't you have symptoms can can actually have an influence on on how the results are interpreted so how do you think we should go about unraveling this as as Val says so that somebody can get the important information that's important to them in their situation and not bombard somebody with all the different options that could be happening because if you're just visiting the hospital 
and somebody wants to make sure that they are going to move you into the right bed in the right ward, there's a very specific situation and you need to understand why the decision has been made and why you can't see your relatives uh, under certain circumstances. There could be very specific things that people have on their minds that they need to know. I think you're right, Graham. And in my experience, there are lots of reasons why people might ask us uh, about uh, COVID tests, which relate to a lot of what you've you've just been saying. So for patients themselves, they're often worried um, that uh, if they've come in with a condition that's not COVID-19, then their, their, their worry might be that they'll be put on a ward together with people who do have COVID-19 and that therefore they'll be exposed to risk. And, and I think that's something that we have to be good at communicating. So the tests come into that, don't they? We will run a test on people uh, when they come into hospital, when they're being admitted, and people may need some help interpreting the results and particularly thinking about how safe that makes the environment that they're going into. So even with the best test, of course, PCR, there is still some uncertainty. They're not perfect tests. So we're going to have to uh, work out a way of effectively communicating a little bit of uncertainty and what that means for patients. So for those who are coming into hospital for non-COVID reasons, um, we can't say absolutely for certain that nobody on the ward they'll be going to will have COVID. But we can, of course, explain that the risk is very low, um, given that everybody will undergo tests uh, and they will have had to have had a negative test. Plus, for example, it may be that they won't be showing symptoms. They won't have had other signs of COVID that wouldn't show on the test, like x-ray changes and so on. So ultimately, the risk is very low. Now, we've talked before as a group about how we might communicate that risk. And um, one thing that we might be tempted to do in medicine is to communicate the risk as a percentage. Uh, But Val, I know you've had some thoughts before about the ways that we might effectively communicate risk. Yes, I was just thinking about that as you were speaking, Rick. Um, I was also going going to challenge you and maybe come back as the patient and say, well, you say the risk is low. Well, what do you mean by low? I think, as you say, percentages don't necessarily mean a great deal to people. But to say um, something like, well, if let's say there were 100 patients that didn't have COVID and you come into that room, that we were certain in that 98 of those 100 patients really didn't have COVID. So it is a very low risk. Yeah, that makes it a bit more tangible, doesn't it, than using the percentage. So um, we, we talk through it. How about... Um, Verifying understanding. How would you like a doctor to check that you're understanding the information? Because it, it's possible, of course, that a, you know a doctor or, a, or another clinician will explain these things to a patient, and they're just too polite to to uh, really express that they haven't understood what has been communicated to them. How do you think clinicians ought to be checking that understanding? I could uh, come in with that, Rick, if I may, because I really think it's important that clinicians take the opportunity to check back with someone uh, what they've understood by what has been said and and not just rely on a nod of the head or a shake of the head um, but but ask people to explain what they've understood and I think the challenge comes from the person in the hospital for the first time is extremely nervous and apprehensive to start with and then the clinician is often using the basis of populations, 100, 100 people 
in the study, whatever, that the doctor's knowledge is gained from populations. And yet for that individual, it's to understand, for them to understand, what about me? Um, I am one person, I am not a hundred people. How can I understand the risk of, of something going wrong or going awry uh, from where I sit? And they are two quite different standpoints. Hence, it's very important to check back that that person is gaining some idea of one in a hundred or one in uh, 98 uh, chances of it being um, a negative or a positive, whatever the result is, is, is really important to emphasize and clearly state so that that person as an individual has a grasp of what's going on and that for that person to be able to come back to the doctor and say, so what you're saying is that there is a very low risk of this happening to me. It's for the patient to interpret it like that rather than the doctor. It, it makes all the difference. Yeah, I was just thinking that um, it isn't just a matter of the doctor checking in with the patients to see if they understand because I think in many cases the patients may be so worried about their condition or may be so distressed by their condition that it's difficult to think clearly and to really to really take in a lot of what they're hearing or they or they they're just panicked they're probably highly anxious at this point um, either because of maybe they've had a, a stroke and they and they've got enough to worry about without getting covid at the same time or if they've got covid and they know that you know quite a few people die from this so they're, they're very very worried and this is something else i think we've talked about within within ppi group at condor um, is the importance of the way in which the doctor communicates with the patient here's an example i mean we know i think it's something like 30 percent of people in this country have hearing impairment and i'm among them um, so i'm quite often reading lips and guess what i can't in a hospital because everyone's got a mask on so um, I'm probably not even hearing properly what's being said, just to add to the level of anxiety. So I'm really looking for some quite simple bodily, single, uh, bodily language signals from my doctor to, to give me that confidence that um, everything could possibly be all right. Of course, that's not always the case, but I think we all need that confidence when we go into hospital. So some non-visual way of of communicating um sort of positive feeling to the patient and that could be with your eyes you know flash your eyes go back to the times when uh, the venetian ladies used to look over the top of their fans and 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 use their eyes to communicate all sorts of different um situations let's say yeah i think that's a really important thought val um because um we do lose a lot by not being able to see each other's faces properly. So we have to learn new ways of using nonverbal uh, means of communication to get messages across. And that's something that I guess we all have to work on now in these new times um, is how we can use our eyes to perhaps convey different emotional messages, uh, use our arms, for example, and, and get messages across that we would usually convey with the use of our mouths for smiles, for example, and that we've now lost. Now, one thing that we've talked about there is uncertainty. And I think that none of us like uncertainty. We'd very much like to be told very clearly 
have we got COVID? Have we not got COVID based on the results of the test? And are we going to do okay if we have got COVID or are we not going to do okay? And that can be very, very difficult because unfortunately in medicine and healthcare, we are full of uncertainty. So how should we go about that? I mean, if we just focus, I know it's a bit of a digression from tests, but let's just think about a very important conversation that we probably have time and time again with our patients about prognosis. Am I going to get better, doctor? How do you think we should respond to that? What are the pitfalls, things we should avoid and things that we should do? Well, I would possibly um, suggest we all try to behave a little bit like a politician. Maybe not not completely, but, but not directly answering the question. Don't feel pushed to give a yes, no answer, a binary answer, but certainly to reassure and, and maybe to sort of suggest, well, we've got a, a number of options here. We've got some medications that have shown really good responses in clinical studies and we've been using now for quite a while. Um, and you could talk about, you know, that we've had a very good success rate, more than, you know, a great number of people now survive this condition. So using sort of positive imagery and, and staying away from the negative side of it. I, I agree, Val. It, it's, I think, Rick, it's so important to be able to build confidence, but not beyond reasonableness. Um, so it's to not only extend that confidence to the patient, but also their family and carers are a big part of of that confidence. But it's got to be appropriate. And I think it comes back to building on your clinical experience and the best evidence to to be confident about what you're saying and to put it in the context of the situation that you face at the time and to understand carefully what the patient needs to build that confidence and what can you offer in terms of helping that patient to feel more confident that they will get well if they are wanting to get well and have a desire to get well as well. It's part of the whole recovery process, I guess. And and that's most apparent, I think, in, in mental health disease where they're building that confidence is, is even more important. So I think you have to find the right way or a good way to build confidence and it's got to be shown to be based on your clinical knowledge and experience and that is the best thing that you can bring to the conversation is is that insight so essentially i think what we're hearing is that we shouldn't necessarily shy away from the truth when there is some uncertainty but that's not the whole picture so there are certain things that we can talk about this the certainty about what we can do about the situation and i know having talked to you in advance that what you think about the way i communicate at the moment my response to that would be to um describe the current situation for the particular patient um, and as Vala said i would uh, explain what we can do and how that might help and then explain the way things might go so it might be that we would say something like most people like yourself actually will get better and it, i would expect that to take perhaps a week or so but it's very different for each individual some people do get worse uh, often people get worse and then get better later and some people don't get better uh, but that's where you can then focus on the positives and what you can do about it, what the treatments are and how we can minimize that risk and the opportunities for the patient. And um, importantly, you've, you you communicated to me that it's important to let people know that there is hope, but to avoid using the term, I hope 
you will get better. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny word is hope, isn't it? If if you're taking your car to the garage and whilst you were picking up the keys, the guy said, uh, we hope you've we hope to have fastened the wheel nuts on properly. It it wouldn't fill you with that much hope. So there's something about that word that is about creating the atmosphere of of hopefulness without actually saying that that's your strategy. Your hoping is not the way to get good hope um, achieved. I just wanted to ask you a question, Rick. If you were speaking to the um, patient's family or loved ones, would you use the same terminology? Personally, Val, I think I would take a similar approach, to be fair. It's a little different talking to the family and you have to personalise that process. But I think the principles would be generally the same. And I wouldn't be afraid of communicating the uncertainty, but by showing them the certainty about the about what we we can do for them in the meantime. We've talked at times about possibly using some visual aid. And I think you've heard a few stories today. I mean, a great way of explaining things is to come up with sort of visual metaphors. Uh, and I love Graham's metaphor of tightening the, the wheel nuts on, on the car um, and hoping things are going to be okay. Um, and we've, we've talked about a few of those. And maybe this is something that one could consider developing maybe locally because, for example, if you live in an area which is, has a very diverse population, um, perhaps one particular cultural group above others, they may respond better to one kind of visual image than another kind of visual image. So um, I think we were, well, we were talking quite recently about viral load and, and what that might mean. And we have this imagery of... Um, of petrol tanks in a car and how much instead of having how much petrol they got in them it was like how much virus have they got in their petrol tank and then maybe how much virus they're pushing out in their exhaust fumes um as one kind of image when thinking about sort of how much virus people might have um so i mean i, I guess i would just throw this open to people to think about their own local circumstances and to think whether there are some images that they could develop which would which be useful in their own local circumstances that analogy with a petrol tank valve might be quite a useful way of communicating the results of a test that is not perfect so our rapid antigen tests like the lateral flow tests and other point of care tests that we might use in an emergency department we know that those tests aren't perfectly sensitive so they will miss some cases of covid however there's evidence to suggest that the tests are much more likely to pick up the patients with a higher viral load who are more likely to transmit the virus to other people. And that's where you could use that petrol tank analogy, isn't it? And that you could, for example, suggest that um, it's like having a petrol gauge on your car that will only alert you when your fuel tank is in the bottom half or quarter of its tank. So if your tank's full or three quarters full, you don't know. You're not going to know about that. That's in, it's invisible. You won't know if you've used quarter of your tank. You won't know if you've used half of your tank. But once you start to get below that, then we can start to pick it up. And importantly, we can pick up those cases where the tank is about to run out of petrol. And that might be similar to the patients with COVID who have a high viral load and are therefore more likely to transmit the virus to other people if we don't detect them. There is really more to discuss about the various tests and how, how we can... We can explore them in a little more detail, um, but I fear we might be 
running out of time. And I was wondering if this is something we could consider discussing in, in more depth, um, the relative merits of the different tests and what they actually measure and what the benefits of those different measures are in different clinical situations. Yeah, I think that would be great, Graham. So we're going to accompany this podcast with a uh, short blog post at St. Hemlin's. And um, of course, we will be tweeting about it. Um, we'd really appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts with us, asking any questions, any thoughts about uh, messages that might be valuable for the future about how we could communicate more effectively with patients um, and other ways that we could use the uh, expertise of uh, lay people like Val and Graham, as, as we've used here. So I think it's time for us to wrap up the podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you to you, Graham and Val. I've certainly learned a lot through this process about how to more effectively communicate with patients about test results. I hope you have too. Uh, so from myself, take care. Thanks very much for inviting me uh, to, to come along and, and take part in this podcast. It's always fascinating to have this opportunity to talk about COVID-19 and particularly how we as, as patients and the public respond to um, to the challenges which we, which we all face every day. So thank you very much indeed for listening. And thank you very much from Graham Prestwich uh, for the privilege and pleasure of being able to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.